Hey guys, welcome to season one, episode 10 of the... Matt, that's wrong. It's episode 11. <laughs> Good start. Hey guys, and welcome to season one, episode 11 of the Every Plant Story podcast, the podcast where we share all kinds of plant stories and the behind the scenes from us in the life here at Gabriella Plants and all around our lovely plant community. My name is Shane Malloy, and I'm the owner and president of Gabriella Plants, and I'm hosting this podcast along with my co-host today, Zach. Hello, hello. Who is our media director here at Gabriella Plants, and a little bit later, we do have a special guest with us. Uh, you can go ahead and say hello, Brett, who is our head grower at Gabriella Plants as well. Hi, guys. Yeah, we'll get to Brett here in a second. We want to talk. The meat of today's podcast is going to be all about soils. Um, it's one of the most frequently asked questions we get. Zach, quite a quite a bit, and especially with customer care, gets that a bit. Uh, everyone's got to repot their plant at some point, or mm-hmm. at least it's inevitable. It may take a little while, maybe something you got to do right away, but you're going to have to do it at some point. So we'll, we'll talk about soils, but first we wanted to just kind of go over the recap of where we are. Guys, it's June. How in the world? No, like for real. It's June. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. I was on my way in today and my phone was just like, it's 6-1. And I was like, oh my goodness, June? Brett, like this year has completely flown by. Absolutely. Um, it's crazy that I've been here six months and at the same time, I feel like I've been here for years. So Yeah, and it, it's <laughs> in the same way, it's two weeks long and it's two years long at the Absolutely. exact same time, 100%. And, uh, you know, Zach, you're kind of in the same boat yeah. as far as uh, you've been with us for about six months as well. Yeah, I'm still trying to get used to writing the correct year. We're already already halfway through it. I'm just, I'm still trying to get like learn it. You you got another like two months until you finally get it right, and then you got about three months of knowing how to do it right before it goes (laughs) away again. Yeah, I'm just on like an eight month, you know, kind of like it takes time to adjust. Yeah, it takes time to adjust. Well, time certainly doesn't stand still, and the plants aren't standing still either. That's the other big thing I've noticed. uh, Just right off the top, is everything at. You know, every everything growing is just exploding. You know, we've been having some warmer temperatures here in Central Florida. We were in the high 90s last week, and it's amazing to see how much every plant just wants to kind of yeah yawn and take a stretch. And, Absolutely. I mean, they're just happy. Yeah, we it, were talking about that yesterday. How you walk in there, it looks like a completely different place. I mean, there's just so many colors, and on my end, it's great because I can walk in there and just shoot any direction, and it's gorgeous. Yeah, but that's a that's a media creator's yeah. dream is like to not have to frame it just right to only show the the one corner that looks good. You have unlimited options, and the greenhouse team's been absolutely killing it at our growing location. In fact, um, last week um, they did for the first time a full inventory count using our internal GP app, which is a a tool we've been developing ourselves for quite some time. It's also kind of the backbone of the Every Plant Story Nursery Stake system. Um, but we've been using it primarily to organize plants for the sake of release of inventory on our website, things like that, kind of keeping track of what we have ready to sell. And at up until last week, that had been primarily how we used GP app for the most of what we did week to week was just um, kind of keeping track of the plants once they reached maturity and ready to be sold. But uh, the long-term plan and what has been in the works for a while is getting it to the point where we could track things from the moment they're planted all the way until um, they ship out, which we've been doing. That's where the story stake system's been coming from. Hopefully some of you guys listening have 
gotten some of those story stakes. Um, we got a couple of really cool uh, feedback emails um, from the nursery stakes this past week, which was really cool to be able to share with the dev team. So keep those coming if you have any thoughts, uh, feedback at everyplantstory.com. But that's been really neat. But Brett, you got to kind of see the whole greenhouse count everything. And I was, I mean, it was over 60,000 plants and that was just what was essentially going to, destined to be sold at some point. We didn't count some of the kind of odd ends. Right. So first I want to say it was inspiring to see the team work so efficiently and just amazingly together in the fact that we were able to count literally every single plant that has, has been planted that is destined to be sold all in one day. That's yeah. really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we got it all done. We were systematic about it. And uh, like you said, Shane, we didn't count any uh, stock baskets or anything that we take cuttings from that isn't destined to be sold. Um, those weren't counted. But still, for there to be almost 60,000 plants out there awaiting to one day be sent to our customers is pretty cool. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's just kind of random little story. But one of the, the funniest phone calls you get every year um, – in, in agriculture, and I've gotten it now, what, four years I've been running the business, um, you get this really sweet, nice lady from the U.S. Department of Agriculture who calls. And, um, you know, depending on the crops, the we're talking about the federal government, USDA, they only care about certain things. So if you're growing certain crops, they'll be more involved in your in your agricultural life. But with houseplants, they, they really only are looking for roughly speaking, how many of what different sizes we produced and just, you know, a ballpark number of what we think we uh, either have in our greenhouse or what we sell per year of number of items. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's always a really kind of awkward phone call to take because I've never known how to know the answer to that. You know what I mean? You just kind of look around and you go, okay, well, if the, you know, we can roughly fit 850 four inch on a bench and you kind of do some quick math in your head, and uh, right. And the past two years, my my secret trick is, uh, well, what did I put last year? <laughs> and, then, and then they'll say, you know, well, you put forty thousand. Put fifty thousand this time because I don't have a way of like actually proving that it's. So this is the first time that the greenhouse has been fully counted that I can ever remember like individually. Wow. Yeah. That wow. I can ever remember. I mean, we we had counts, and like when Dad used to grow the Boston ferns and stuff. Obviously, the stuff that comes in via tissue culture and stuff like that, you kind of have a count right. on ahead of time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, especially the stuff we were doing from cuttings, we never had a way of knowing that number. So it was really cool to see that number. Um, and by the way, the, the the USDA thing, they don't you know care that it's a, an approximate number. That's okay. It's not like your of taxes. Course. Yeah, yeah, you're not lying, you're not lying in a way <laughs> that's like, going to like this perjure yourself or anything. Yeah. But. Um, you know, they're just trying to know, roughly speaking, how much, uh, you know, you're working on. And it's been really cool to see those numbers pop up. And I've also gotten a chance to use um, GP app quite a bit because uh, with Brooks's gr the greenhouses in my backyard, I've already been really getting to work in those. I've already planted over 2,000 plants in there, even though I just have a couple, you know, kind of temporary benches on some ground cover, still waiting on a couple uh, of the parts for the professional metal benches that should be in in the next week or so. Um, and then we'll start slowly moving some of the things that I'm going to be working on propagating, like the Gabby and the Rios, uh, mm -hmm. over to Brooks, um, which is mostly what I've been working on over 
over the nighttime mainly because it's a lot cooler out there in the evening time. And oh, yeah. um, during the day, obviously, I'm trying to help you guys as much as I can, the team. But going back to the team real quick, and then we can kind of close up on the on the count thing. And uh, Sam wasn't able to join us on this podcast, so I'm kind of voicing his uh, perspective a little bit in this. But the cool thing was, as, as Brett kind of mentioned, uh, not only was the team, you know, surrounding the whole count on Friday when they actually did the, the actual count, um, but in, from my vantage point, the whole team across all of our different specialties um, really came together to help um, understand what each other needed and make it happen. Um, I know Greenhouse, you guys had a meeting with um, Dev earlier in the week, I believe on Tuesday, right. and kind of talked through like, you know, if the goal is to count by the end of the week, what are some tools we can build in a quick amount of time? To make that count a little bit easier than the GP app we had kind of been using, which had been primarily focused on being used at a desktop computer. It wasn't as mobile friendly as we'd like. And obviously, if you're going to go count through an acre worth of greenhouses, you know, it's way more efficient to be able to go ahead and, you know, do that on your phone or on a tablet than having to take paper notes and come back to a desktop. Um, so it was really cool not only to see that the greenhouse team got the count done, but that in order for you guys to have the free time on Friday, shipping needed to request plants the day ahead of time and make sure that inventory was on board with getting them that. That happened perfectly. Um, Dev got you the tools and the training stuff um, to be able to have those new tools to be able to make the count successful. And meanwhile, all this is going on. Shop is still open. <laughs> Alexa's doing a great job. So it was just an amazingly proud moment for me to see not only you know the, the task of counting getting done, but to see all the teams coming together, understanding what's on the plate of the other team and helping work as one big team, even though we're spread across into four locations now. Um, that was just super, super cool to witness. So bravo to you guys and bravo to the rest of the team for making that happen because, um, you know, it's not easy. Uh, it, not every business can walk into multi-location stuff and and do it as well as I, I think we have at this point. So Oh, yeah, especially with how fast, too, we've kind of grown into it, you know, just kind of constantly just learning the changes and then adapting and being able to still kill it like that and seeing all those teams just adapt and just kind of fill in those different and positions. Go, was yeah, great. and going yeah. back to the whole, it's June 1st. I mean, right. yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> I, we haven't been multi-location and, until January. So, yeah. you know, we're also on the same time indicator of how long we've been doing the multi-location thing. Yeah, and I mean, not enough credit, I feel like, has been given to development for the fact that they were able to create this GP app product that we were then be we were then able to go and use on Friday and we had no snags. We were able to count the entire greenhouse and it was completely fine. There were no issues. Everything worked like it was supposed to. I mean, it was just so seamless. It was really, yeah, De really incredible. Dev really is some unsung heroes as far as just building all these tools um, for us to use. Chuck and Robert have just been phenomenal and the, the rest of the team on the development team have been great building these tools. Um, that we believe will make our jobs easier, make us more efficient, but also we believe will help um, more growers in the future also be able to do the simple task of growing a little bit better. So anyhow, that's a good uh, good place to wrap that up as far as the greenhouse recap. Plenty of story stakes going out. It was really cool to see the count, to see the team coming together. Um, last thing in uh, kind of housekeeping is shop, as I just mentioned, uh, has been open and is now running its normal weekly hours. So if you want more details about how to visit our shop in person, come say hi to Alexa. 
you can visit gabrielaplantsshop.com and the hours and everything should be there. Or you can search in Google Gabriella Plants and it should come up with shop and the open hours there as well. So hope to see you there at shop. Uh, moving on though, and those, uh, those open hours are Wednesday through Saturday. As of right now, they may change in the future. So just go to the website for the most up-to-date information. Um, now that we're kind of past that uh, recap stage, let's get into the meat of today's podcast on soils. But before we get there, Brett, what else has been happening at the greenhouse that I I haven't had a chance to see? I just want to be able to you know highlight any of those <laughs> moments. And of course, well, uh, great things are in the works. Uh, like we say here at Gabriel Plants, we're always growing more. Um, Lots of new things coming in. Uh, we're continuing to expand our collections that we offer. So our arid plants, we have our adeniums, aka desert roses, are growing and ready to ship out. We have four colors, uh, pink, white, border, which is white with a pink margin, and picoty. A very, very cute plants. Um, we're expanding our Haworthia collections. I believe we have over six varieties of Haworthias now. Wow. Um, keep going. Uh all those things, anything you wanted for highlight, low light, anything in the mix. Um, we are about to get our first batch of new Rex begonias. They are part of a new Jurassic series that was offered to us first uh, as a forerunner because we, you know, have connections in the industry and whatnot, mm-hmm. and uh, wanted to get our foot in the door. And so we have 22 new varieties of Rex Be- Jurassic series Rex begonias coming. That's awesome. Um, so those will be awesome and they're going to grow great in our new uh evaporative cooling um brooks greenhouse and mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. um big things ahead for those speaking of cooling holy <laughs> holy moly that thing can cool oh you can notice it uh, oh yeah oh yeah now and the, the weird thing is i think we talked about this last time but just for a brief recap the weird thing is is its cooling effect is massively dependent on what the outdoor humidity is mm-hmm. so if the outdoor humidity is fairly low it can cool quite a bit. In fact, last week when you guys were doing the inventory count, it was around 98 at our original growing location, and it was uh, 81 inside Brooks. So, That's awesome. Yeah, that also, uh, it's not wow. just about it being cooler, though. Like you said, it allows us to grow some plants that, you know, we couldn't have grown otherwise, like begonias. And right. they're just, they're going to love it. Absolutely. Um, so very exciting things ahead in that department. That's awesome. As far as growing research and development, um, I am still at the greenhouses at all hours of the night uh, playing with uh, pollination and propagation and everything. So um, to touch on, we had some philodendron Williamsii that I grew from seed. Um, so those I'm continuing to split out into three-inch pots. So those are coming up. They're finally... Wow. How many seeds do you think that was? Um Probably close to 200. Wow. Um, and there's still about 100 in the original tub that I'm separating. It's a slow you process. Kinda just, you kind of just threw all the seeds in one tub, let them all kind of germinate, and right. then kind of go through and pick them apart? Yeah, absolutely. Um, going forward, I am going to change that process a little bit just because the separation is a little traumatic on their baby roots. Mm. Um, but live and learn as as what all of this is like entangled at all yeah they're they're very much tangled right now in their tub so that's why it's such a slow process to Mm -hmm. have to meticulously go through and try to separate them as gently as possible and then you know they're they were germinated in pure sphagnum moss so now then also you're kind of ripping some of those tiny roots and now you're putting it into soil so there is like a 
a slight um, rebound. Yeah, I was going to say, it kind of like through. takes a step back for a mm, second. Right. Yeah. But they're putting on real leaves. They're they're getting cute. So those are awesome. That's awesome. Um, we did go ahead and uh, just to recap, I don't know if I had mentioned this before, but we um, crossed a Anthurium crystallinum X magnificum with another Anthurium crystallinum X magnificum. And so those seeds are setting. And so those berries are forming. They're starting to slightly pop above the surface of the infructescence on the plant. So probably two or three more weeks and we'll be able to harvest our first seeds from that. Now, when you cross two of the exact same thing, is is that just kind of ad- admitting that you're going to get the same result? Like, because um, obviously sometimes people cross, you know, right. and are trying to, to merge two different species. If it had been a true species crossed with a true species, that would, it's called selfing. And essentially you're going to get, you're going to get um, kids that look just like the parents. But because the parents were hybrids themselves, the kids could be, I mean, in, you know, sixth grade biology, I learned how to do a Punnett square, you know, with your dominant and recessive traits. And so because you have crystallinum and magnificum on both sides, the, the children could be more crystallinum, could be more magnificum, could be a hybrid of the two, different than the parents. So um, each of those seeds, as they grow out, could be very different from each other. Now, would you still call that the same name? Because um, yes. How, I guess what I'm trying to say is, do you put squared at the end? I was just about to say, we would probably call it crystallinum magnificum squared. I like that. <laughs> I approve of that, yeah. yeah that's I good like stuff. That. That's good stuff. Um, some things, and now, of course, anything that I say, I want people to get excited about, but also... Creating new plants is a very long process from the time Mm -hmm. that we do the hybridization to collecting the seeds, to germinating the seeds, to growing the plants out could be years. So these things are in the works, but it's not something that you're going to see available anytime soon. If if you can barely pull them apart, we probably can't (laughs) ship it yet. That's Um, probably not not to that stage. (laughs) (laughs) But I did go ahead and it seems to be successful that I had collected a few weeks ago pollen from a philodendron maximum. Um, The leaves on the parent maximum that we have in the greenhouse are easily four to five feet long. Um, And there was a philodendron weeks red hybrid that we had that was blooming that uh, was female receptive. So I did put the maximum pollen on that inflorescence and it seems to have taken. So from what I can tell, we will have berries developing of a weeks red crossed with a maximum, which would be pretty cool looking. You can't, you can't, you, the listeners can't see the stars that just went through. Uh, you saw Brad kind of like look around. <laughs> yeah. like, That's going to look. And then he just kind of like looked up at the sky like, he was, wa- for like he was waiting for his true love to appear. Uh, something else I'm, I'm waiting to see if it took, but I did cross a philodendron moonlight with a philodendron Jose Bueno. Um, I, put, I put the Jose Bueno pollen I had collected onto the moonlight in fluorescence. So um, we will see on that. Um, as I well, I wouldn't even think you could do that. Yeah. Are these all things that you just, you haven't seen done before that you just want to mm-hmm. attempt to see if it is absolutely possible? Nice. Yeah. So these, these hybrids that I'm attempting, as far as I know, have never been done before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's exciting. And also, I mean, what I find to be 
the best thing about hybridization is you don't know what that's going to create. Mm -hmm. And also, like I was just saying with the anthuriums with the Punnett square, like if you have a Moonlight as a parent and a Jose Bueno as a parent, there's so many different genetics that can come from both of them that even if we only get 20 seeds, each of those 20 seedlings could be vastly different from each Mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. And so you then are able to continually go deeper and deeper and deeper into that lineage until you get a plant that is truly noteworthy that we could potentially put into tissue culture to then get mass produced at, you know, uh, a larger level. And and Mm. speaking of like, there's a million different ways it can come out. There's also a million different traits. Correct me if I'm wrong. A million (laughs) different traits uh, of when you're crossing, you know, you may not grab the color, the leaf color may not be the thing that, you know, that is shared, but the self heading or the, you know, s- smaller or larger leaf size right. or the shape may be the thing that sticks, but not the color. So, like, it's not always about now we're going to have a yellow Jose Bueno that looks mm. like it's unverted. No, ab- absolutely. And because a lot of these, I mean, we're doing hybrids with hybrids. So, Moonlight is a complex hybrid that has four or five different philodendrons in its lineage. So, even though the Moonlight has green paddle life leak leaves and is self-heading. One of its parents, who may be an erubescence that had a vining habit, that may be expressed in a different, in a seedling, you know, in a different form that now you're like, wait, where did that trait come from? Because it may have been recessed in the moonlight, but then through genetics came out in the seedling. Which kind of to go back to English is like, you know, you didn't get the blonde hair from your mom, but then your kids, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And you're like, yeah, no, that looks just like mom or you you (laughs) had to see where it came from. Well, that's really neat. Um, That's awesome. Uh, It's so cool to see uh, you describe new things that are happening. Obviously, I mainly try to keep propagating the things (laughs) we already have. Um, And it's always cool to see, to run into you at night. Uh, If you ever, you're you're not over there a whole lot. I know we did that one time lives at night, but it's always. uh, Uh, Yeah. Well, yeah, I I just left that going and. I could see his hands sticking in and out of it a little bit. So I'm like, oh, yeah, he was there at probably one in the morning. Well, it's always it's always weird because you know sometimes I don't do it as much now that we're back into the warm weather. But in the the cooler weather, I you know, drive drive over to the greenhouses essentially nightly when the heaters run every night just to make sure all of them are firing right and there hasn't been any problems you know around the middle of the night. And, you know, at a greenhouse in the middle of kind of agricultural land, you know, your neighbor's a little bit further away. You're not expecting, like, to see people or to see (laughs) any lights. And there was a couple times where I was, like, you know, parked on the side of the greenhouse looking at one of the greenhouses and then would just see this, like, kind of light beam just, like, slash across the side of the other greenhouse. And I'm like, what's that? And then eventually I'd find him with, like, a headlamp in there, like, and he had just been, like, finding his way with a headlamp on, so. That's amazing. Um, I would like to touch, thank you, Zach, for bringing that up. Uh, we did a time lapse of, um, I have a night-blooming cactus, Selenocereus grandiflorus, uh, that I've had since 2015 that bloomed for us, and so I was expecting the bloom, and so we did a time lapse, and it was really awesome because night-blooming cactus are so cool because they bloom at night, but only for one night. Um, and so to be able to see that happen, but at the same time that we were doing that time-lapse, I also had a, a Sirius repandus, which is also known as Sirius peruvianus, which is a tall columnar cactus, um, blooming that same night. And so I did attempt a cross-pollination between the Selenocereus grandiflorus and the Sirius repandus. Mm. And as far as I can tell, that intergeneric hybrid is the first time that those genera have ever been crossed 
in science. Um, so it is kind of exciting to see and cross my fingers and hope that we get some sort of hybrid from that. Also, what's the chances of both of them opening at the same time? Exactly. Like yeah. that's, that's some. Uh, well, yeah, I even uh, was talking to Brett about that. Like how, because I asked him, I was like, how did you know that these two flowers are, he's like, oh yeah, this one's probably going to go tonight and this flower is probably going to go tomorrow night. And just like that, they did. So I was like, it's crazy how you can just kind of tell when they're getting to that point and when they're ready, just kind of burst open. And then they're there for six, 12 yeah. hours. Yeah. And then that's gone. Crazy. We should, we should post the, uh, the time lapse of this on mm-hmm. the every plant story. Yeah. IG. I, I got to get the rest of the information to Zach, but we'll aim for that for this week because yeah, yeah you guys will love that. Yeah. yeah it's super, yeah. super cool. We'll make sure to put it on the every plant story one too, even if we cross post it on the, on the main Gabriella account. So you could, find this hopefully sometime soon at at every plant story for sure um so awesome well let's dive into soils because it's one of the most common questions we get um most of the time the question gets phrased in the sense of like i'm going to be repotting soon you know what uh soil are you guys using you know because they want to make sure that they're kind of replicating that or it's been working well and we also have uh in this year, speaking of doing all kinds of new things like the count and pretty much the whole ha- first half of the podcast, um, we hadn't really experimented with a ton of, of different soil mixes. Um, previous to this year, we essentially used one mix for everything and would occasionally put in a tiny bit more perlite, making it two rough mixes we used. And now there's quite a few different ones we're using for the you know ever-expanding number of different plants that we're growing, which all need different stuff. So tell me the process, Brett, of of kind of what you came into on the soil front and what, what you've kind of been developing um, for use of our stuff. Of course. Um, so first I want to say that uh, we use the term soil here um, pretty loosely, as in uh, we actually don't grow any of our plants in soil. Um, we grow our plants strictly in soilless planting media, um, soil is the contents of the ground, basically sand, silt, or clay that is outside that you could, you know, dig in your backyard or in front of a building or something, and that's going to be soil. Um, well, I guess that's an easy podcast, Zach. Well, we don't use soil. So, uh, <laughs> guess we'll see you next time. <laughs> no, no, no. But as far as so- soilless planting media, uh, we do have a, a wide array of uh, things that we're using. So, um, like you mentioned, when we first, when I first came in, we were using BM six, which is a mix of eighty to ninety percent um, peat, and so peat is actually ground down sphagnum moss. Um, fun fact. Um, and so 89, 80 to 90% peat, and then the rest is, is a fine perlite. So we grow most a, of our BM6 or custom blend, which we got relabeled as BM6, and then they took it back and relabeled it as custom blend. It's 8515. Oh, okay. Just, you know. Uh, that's Wonder the one. one soil mix that I happen to know a little bit <laughs> more about, only because of my family greenhouse has been using it for like a decade. <laughs> um, so we grow most of our tropicals in that. Um, and then we have made a special, uh, we grow the succulents in essentially a 50-50. So it's going to be 50% of the BM6 and then 50% fine perlite that we add in as well. Um, that gives for a, a larger porosity. Um, so drainage is faster as well as it doesn't hold water for as long to mitigate any rotting that may happen. 
Um, I then wanted to experiment with doing a special aeroid mix. Um, so at first we were using Reptibark as a soilless uh, amendment. Um, Reptibark is a fur bark uh, product. Um, we found, and through research and development of testing it, that the fur bark breaks down somewhat fast, um, which is good because it will allow nutrients to get back into the soil that the plants like. Um, but from a production standpoint, we were looking for something that, you know, had a little bit more stability. Um, so we switched over to Orchiata, which is a pine bark uh, amendment. Um, so it's actually Pinus radiata is the is the pine that is used. Um, the pine bark holds up longer and also has more structure and shape to it. Orchiata comes in four different sizes. Um, so we use the power size, which is 9 to 12 millimeters. So essentially each bark chip is 9 to 12 millimeters. Um, and so our aeroid mix is going to be BM6 with some Orchiata and then some additional fine perlite. And then we also use a large coarse perlite size three. Yeah, that, that was hard to find. Yes, it was. Um, it seems like, well, from what I'm hearing, that there is going to be a perlite shortage soon. Um, I guess the perlite mines are shutting down because there's like a change of ownership and some sort of legal thing is happening. Um, so people don't want to... People don't want to source large perlite, and when perlite is scarce to find, I guess it's easier to find in smaller smaller sizes. So, um, yeah, we, and, we and were I able imagine to also some. like the shipping logistics of getting that coarse perlite, just because like I can make you some fine perlite out of some coarse perlite by taking some <laughs> coarse perlite and like mm -hmm. crushing it in my hand. So I imagine also, <laughs> so right, I, right. I imagine also like it's it's that much harder to get some of those ingredients simply because yeah you got to make sure that in the entire logistics chain that you don't just end up shipping them mm. the same you know outcome by the time it gets to them right uh, no you're right um, and so that's our arid mix a, a blend of those four ingredients. Um, we are using the aeroid mix uh, for things like uh, higher value alocasias, like some jewel alocasias, um, things, you know, like the Maharanis. Um, we tried it with some peperomias, but we are going to switch over to a peperomia mix that is mostly bark. Um, mm. It's about, it's a three to one mix of Orchiata and BM6. So, so it's mostly bark. Peperomias are epiphytic in nature, which we usually don't think about because we typically see them in soil. Um, but for our greenhouse condition, we are finding that they grow best when they are in something that is very, very porous, yet can still hold some sort of nutrients. So that's the difference of bark and perlite, because perlite is great for porosity, but it has no EC, which is exchange capacity. So perlite is able to have air spaces that water can go in and out of and air can flow through, but it has no way of holding onto yeah, any it, actual it doesn't nutrients. Have any nutrients to exactly. it. Exactly. Whereas the pine bark is able to provide aeration and also uh, you know, allow for some additional water flow. But it not only can hold onto nutrients like any fertilizer we put in the soil, but also will leach out nutrients as it slowly degrades. So there are nutrients in the bark that the the plants can make use of outside of the fact that they're retaining 
the chemical fertilizers that we can use. Absolutely. Outside of a greenhouse condition, if you were looking at plants that were grown being grown in real soil, most of the nutrients that the plants gain from soil is from detritus or, or humus, which is essentially broken down plant matter. Um, so looking at that in the same way, pine bark serves that purpose in soil that we don't have any sort of organic matter that could break down. We're, we're providing that so that they can get some sort of, you know, benefits from uh, nutrients that wouldn't be provided in a peat substance usually. Hmm. So when, when you talk about aeroid mixes, I know that's a, that's a popular one that, you know, I see plenty of posts online about, you know, this is how I make mine. Um, what, what goes into ours? I know you mentioned some of the ingredients, but what is the kind of mix on that? And why do you think that that's beneficial um, for our customers to use? And also, you know, are these ingredients most people can find? Um, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, okay, so we mentioned the four ingredients. So I'd say these numbers are very rough. I make every batch by hand. Um, so... If we do uh, half regular BM6, which is standard potting soil, um, we then have a quarter bark, a quarter fine perlite, maybe an eighth large perlite, and then a dash of an additional eighth of bark or fine perlite, depending on how I see the mix is going. Um, what would you say a dash? Is a dash just like a quick little... Yeah, is it a dash? Yeah, every maybe. Uh, is it well, like, um, <laughs> you know, what we, are you... Are you like <laughs> salt, salt baying it? And you're also, just like, use, also, if you... I do like... I do see Brett is a smart guy because he's using parts to describe it because otherwise he'd be like, <laughs> I use this five-gallon bucket of this and all of our customers would be like, I just need enough to repot a six-inch <laughs> pot. Exactly. That's the thing because we... I mean, we buy our, our soilless amendments in bulk, so... I use bags, so my dash is half a bag, whereas your dash may be half a cup. So mm-hmm. I mean, or a handful, or exactly. Yeah. Um, but it, it's good for, like I said, the jewel allocations. We also grow our, our anthuriums in it. Plants that, in nature, are more epiphytic or hemiepiphytic aren't. For those who don't know, I know we defined epiphytic before, but for those who don't know what epiphytic means, um, an epiphyte is a plant. So epi means a. Uh, above and um, fight is is love. So uh, an epiphyte is a plant that would grow basically in the air. I'm air quoting, um, quote unquote, in the air, which means that they're not in soil. The roots are going to be on a tree branch or something up in the canopy where they still get water and nutrients through rainfall in the rainforest or something like that. But their roots aren't sitting in a saturated contained space of something. Um, because of that, those types of plants, though they can be acclimated sometimes and grow somewhat in a, in a soil, it's not how they grow best. And we're after trying to grow the plants to the best of their ability to create a product that is, you know, perfect for the customer. Um, and so they seem to really thrive in these aeroid mixes because they are airier. Um, they do get some of those nutrients, like I was saying, from the pine bark and whatnot that they wouldn't be able to get from, you know, we don't, we don't put leaf litter on our pots or anything to give any sort of, uh, you know, carbon breakdown detritus. So they get that provided through that mix. And then also, um, overall, yeah, I think it's just because it's airier, um, 
they just they really enjoy that and we see that the plants are happier and also we can produce them quicker because they're growing how they want to be growing yeah and it's always been a um something i think is kind of fun to mention is uh they're kind of those those more uh, better draining, more airflow soil mixes can also kind of be a double-edged sword in the greenhouse, especially you're just now experiencing it. But yeah, when we have those 98 degree days, you know, it can be tricky to keep those um, moist. But on the flip side, we also realize that, um, you know, it's been a time or two that we've been told that our soil mixes are on the heavier side. Um, for some of the things that don't use the aeroid mix and use kind of more of our traditional mixes. And a lot of that is because of the temperatures and because of how much moisture they're going to need in order to essentially make it a full day. <laughs> that, that's um, absolutely true. Um, it's a double-edged sword. And I mean, that is the caveat of using an aeroid mix is that it drains quicker, it holds less moisture, which means you have to water it more often. Right. But on the flip <laughs> side too, an aeroid mix, especially for those plants that you mentioned, um, provides even more benefit perhaps than we even see in the greenhouse when it's inside your home. Because yeah, some of our heavier mixes will tend to take a week, two weeks if the high temperature inside your home is going to be 74, 76. You know, that is not the same as 98. We have a lot of um, evaporation, a lot of moisture being, you know, eaten, for lack of a better phrase, by just the sheer heat of Florida, which may not be the case inside your home. So right. it's important to to kind of keep in mind how long something should be staying moist and in some ways kind of tailor, at least for our, our customers and at home, tailor your soil mixes, not just, it's it's. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not a one size fits all. The exact Absolutely. proportions you gave may need to be modified if, you know, your house, if you're going into winter and your house is going to be even cooler than what I just said, you may want to give it even, you know, more airflow and, and less uh, materials that will hold on to moisture. So, you know, there is no perfect mix and it's important to keep in mind what your home and your growing condition is as well. Absolutely. And I mean, there are people that, swear by LECA, um, which is a, uh, a a clay aggregate, essentially, um, that is completely Yeah, soilless. tell me how that works, because that is one of those things that I, I just haven't really got into. That's not uh, so much a, a soil in the way that I think of it, but yeah, it, it's um, popular. Sure. So LECA stands for Lightweight Expandable Clay Aggregate. So it's clay that they have taken and pressure forced into ball-sized pellets that you can get in various sizes um, that you would have to take a plant and remove all the soil from the roots and then transplant it into LECA or if it was cutting, a, you know, directly plant it into LECA. And then the LECA sits in uh, water, either, um, you know, passive or direct. So either there's a wicking mechanism or it is just completely immersed in the water. And then it essentially becomes a soilless growing media. Um that all you would have to do is fill it with water from from time to time. Many people have great results with it. I personally, in my home, have not had great results with it. Like you're saying, everyone you know has their preferences. Yeah, um, and what their what their growing conditions. You know, I don't think Leco would work very long in a greenhouse. I'd be sure. Of that. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, but you know, it, it is an option for some of those people who are you know maybe still struggling to get stuff to dry out. Um, what, tell me what, um, 
I know this is kind of going into fertilizers, but you, you mentioned that bark can hold on to different nutrients. Are there different uh, ways of administering fertilizer that would depend on the type of soil? Because one of the questions I've always had is if you were using something like LECA, I mean, we, we use water-soluble fertilizer sometimes when watering plants, you know, and obviously if you get a bouquet of flowers at, you know, the grocery store or whatever that comes with that little plant food pack, is it one of those types of situations where because of how LECA works, you would have to introduce nutrients through Yes, ab- absolutely. Um, so when we are dealing with our type of soilless growing, um, the the media can hold those nutrients somewhat. So we use you know time release fertilizer as well as water soluble fertilizer. When you're doing something with LECA or even just water propagation, because there is nothing to hold on to those extra nutrients, you want to di- dilute your fertilizer mixes substantially because essentially there is nothing uh, in between the um, the roots and the water and and the fertilizer that it would burn the plants yeah. to give them all the direct nutrients at once. There's nothing to hold on to the extra. There's nothing that they can kind of take little pieces from as they need. Um, so because of that, you do have to be careful that if you are doing some sort of soilless growing um, like LECA, you have to d- dilute your fertilizer. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, and one of the things that never um, appealed to me about LECA was just that, like, I don't know, I can see it being both a complete thing that somebody would be into, but just personally, like, seeing, you know, like a watch pot never boils, you know, if you look at something. <laughs> like, I feel like if I can see the roots, it's just my luck that they'll never form. <laughs> I don't know. That's maybe just, like, a weird little, uh, little quirk, but I... I don't know. Something about like just what happens beneath the soil line to me is always supposed to be kind sure. of hidden behind <laughs> yeah. the nursery yeah, pot. You're not so. supposed to be looking at that. <laughs> exactly. It needs its privacy. To exactly. Do its that, yeah. that, it's under the soil line for a reason. But um, well, tell me what what other um, kind of tips would you have for a customer who may be um, asking if they need to be repotting a particular plant? So, okay, that's a great question. And the biggest thing that I'm seeing online and on the internet right now is I just bought this plant. I just bought this plant and I'm going to remove every single piece of soil from the roots and I'm going to look at all the roots and I'm going to wash it out and I'm going to inspect everything and then pot it. Just like how if you bought a brand new plant, you're not going to cut every single leaf off of it to make sure that the stem is okay. You shouldn't, in the same aspect, mess with the roots. The roots are an extension of that plant. And you messing around with it is really, on a microscopic and and a very minuscule level, breaking each and every one of those individual root hairs that is so incredibly important in the viability of that plant and the plant's ability to uptake nutrients. And that plant has just, like, I mean... It's kind of like a little bit of a WTF scenario because it literally just spent three months like trying to figure out how to do that whole process of making the little hairs. And it's like, yes, we finally got this. And then, you know, screeching halt. I really think it depends on your growing conditions. If you see a plant has come in and it's in, let's say, a soil mix that is like 100% peat and you think that that's going to hold water too long for your north-facing windowsill, 
then maybe in that time it is right to unpot it and put it into your custom blend aeroid mix because you know that that's what is going to be best for that plant. If you see that a plant has come in and it's in a potting mix that seems to be pretty good, makes sense, I'm also okay with you taking the plant, you know, flipping it upside down, removing the pot and inspecting the plants, the plant's roots that way. If it's not completely root bound, it can probably go another six months to a year in that pot, in that soil. Uh, the other big thing I hear is, but I have a really pretty pot. I want to put this plant in, drop the grower's pot into the pot no one will know yeah uh, you know yeah. and if and if you're really worried about it you can get some of the extra like you know i don't i'm not good with uh like you know the cosmetic and uh, that, that kind of thing i let other people do that uh but like you can get a little bit of the the moss sure uh even the fake stuff i'm saying right like, from like Joey. that's what i'm saying yeah. it's sure. like if you're that worried about somebody mm -hmm. seeing the nursery pot inside of the pot like you can always do the little like yeah you know what i mean get the fake IV or Hi whatever yeah hide kinda, it yeah um but yeah, I mean, unless the roots are poking out the bottom of the pot, unless the roots are completely root-bound, unless the soil is a mix that you know isn't going to work for your soil conditions, don't repot it. Yeah, and I think the other thing, I, I really like that. I think the other nugget that would be helpful for customers is also keep in mind um, to not make that, even if you know that you tend to do better with your mix and in your environment, don't... I guess one of the things that have a little bit of patience when you're unboxing something too, because that plant may appear to be slightly unhealthy, which you may leap to the conclusion is because the soil is moist and you may right. try to draw these conclusions when in reality, something like an alocasia, we could have it in no soil. It's going to show up mostly limp because of how much they rely on lighting to keep their upright nature. So it's not always what it seems either. Like as much as soil is a huge part of a plant's life, it's not the only thing. It's not the only reason your plant could be declining as well. So keeping in mind, you know, That's if you moved your plant between two different rooms and it all of a sudden starts taking a dive, you know, obviously everything's situational, but my gut would say it's probably something to do with lighting or the, you know, if there's a ceiling fan in the other room or something, um, not my immediate assumption is not it got root rot right. by moving it into a different room. The, the, the limpness may be because of a lighting thing or because of a temperature difference. Well, and I think like what you were starting with as a general rule if you get a new plant, wait two weeks. Give it a two-week grace period. Let it acclimate. Yeah, it's a lot of stress to the plant. Absolutely. I mean, plants in the wild were not being put in boxes and shipped across <laughs> the country. That's that's not how Mother Nature designed it. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> um, and so, yes, and then as well as with everything being situational, I think another big thing is that I'm seeing on the internet now is, like you're saying my plant is sad. Oh, it's root rot. Root rot is such a broad general term. There are bacteria and fungus that can affect and attack roots. And there's a plethora of both different bacteria and different fungi that attack the roots. So to just say my plant has root rot really has no scientific backing to it. There's so many different things that it could be. Um, and Nine out of ten times, it's not root rot anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many? I for, I'm blanking on the, but we shipped 
almost a hundred thousand plants last year. Um, you know, it's not a rampant problem of when you get a plant out of a box that it instantly has root rot. And a lot of times, and this isn't to say we never have root rot. We've experienced it before. It can happen on occasion, but you tend to run higher and higher risks of the soil born bacteria and fungus, as well as other pests, you know, the lower you drop your quality uh, of ingredients. There are some people who will, going back to your whole, we don't even use soil thing, um, on the flip side of that, if you dig part of the reason we use what we use, and right. for that matter, all commercial growers, for the most part, use what we use or, or something to the effect is because of the amount of disease and pests that can come Absolutely. from just digging up you know, the spot in your backyard. You don't know what that contains. So because we used bag soil that comes in bagged, it's never you know, in the open bed of a dump truck as some other growers will use topsoil in that kind of way. It's one of the reasons we don't have many weed seeds. Right. You know, customers can have plants for months and not see weeds for the most part. The soil mixes we get in, each of those bags has been sterilized. It's been pH adjusted. Most of them have have a wetting agent that has been added to them. Correct. Which allows for, uh, you know, moisture to affect and hit and saturate a really dry soil quicker and also holds on to water a little better. Each of these things has been put into place because we're buying our soil, our soilless uh, potting medias from reputable sources that this is what they do. This is their product that they're selling us. They're not just digging soil out from the ground. So no, we don't have any issues with weeds. And also with root rot, uh, to go back to the dark ages with the scientific um, discovery that uh, spontaneous regeneration like life doesn't come from nothing mm-hmm. like in order for root rot to affect your plant there has to be that bacteria or fungus in your soil it doesn't just appear because the plant was wet exactly yeah, no mm-hmm. um, that, that, that was my point with you you do tend to see it more active in the places that use topsoil that use portions of their mediums where it is dug from the ground and there's some plants that you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know how, you know, what, what we use, and this isn't to say um, we're hoity-toity, but it, <laughs> it's probably one of the most expensive... Oh, absolutely. ...mixes. We use high, yeah, we yeah, use Yeah, it's probably one of the soil. most expensed bag soil you can buy in the United States right now. Um, so, yeah, if you're growing a bunch of orange trees or a bunch of pine trees and people listening right now can't see that I'm like bear hugging a giant tree. (laughs) You know what I mean? But those pots that like you couldn't bear hug. Mm. Yeah. You're probably not going to be able to afford to put our bagged soil in that just because of the sheer cost. So it's not that all, you know, if you buy it from a grower, it's not going to have root rot. That's not what I'm saying, but it does matter what ingredients you use. And it matters to that effect at your house too. One of you know, don't make the mistake of running outside and grabbing a shovel. Um, but to save the, ten dollars, you right. want to just put your plant in the soil that you have in your backyard. Like, but at the same time, if you were doing nine different window deckings, yeah, maybe just grab a shovel and uh, right. you know grab some of that stuff. So it's it's all situational for sure. Absolutely, it it depends on what you're growing. And also, I mean, I don't want to poo-poo the growers that do use soil from outside because if you're a landscape grower and you're growing plants to be planted in the ground here in Florida, it makes sense for you to plant them in a pot in the soil that's going to be similar to what is going to be in the ground. It is situational. 
Um, so, I mean, we grow our plants in what is best for indoor care and indoor uh, growing conditions. Well, last, um, this has been awesome. Last thing I wanted to touch on, um, and honestly, you just gave me the idea a couple minutes ago, is the whole concept of wedding agents, because I do think it's something um, that people aren't familiar with. Um, and as Brett kind of said, you know, these, the soil that we, we source or soilless mediums, <laughs> uh, I, I, you probably won't get me to admit <laughs> we don't use soil. Um, it's still saying, it's still a little bit better, Zach, than saying we play in the dirt for a living. So yeah. oh, I will uh, never use that term. My, my professor, I took a soil sciences class in college and my professor would say it, plants do not grow in dirt. Dirt is what's underneath your fingernails and what you kick off of your boots at the end of the day. Soil soil grows life. Dirt is dirt is not that. Yeah, I said dirt over at the greenhouse once and then it was Courtney like from across the greenhouse like it's not dirt. It's soil. <laughs> yeah. like, Sorry. Zach's, I won't say that again. Zach's <laughs> subtly insulting the greenhouse <laughs> while he's there and he doesn't even know it. That's awesome. But these these um kind of like you were saying, I mean science has really pushed a lot of these things further than, you know, we knew before and part of that is all of the kind of just like anything at the grocery store, some of those kind of uh I mean, you could pronounce a lot of words, Brett. You probably can't pronounce all of the things on the back of a food label sometimes with all the extra syllables and stuff they throw in there. But it's kind of the same thing with soil, and there are a couple chemical agents that are used. Um, one deters fire ants um, is a particular chemical that's used in a lot of those soils. Um, but the wetting agent is something that I kind of wanted to bring up um, because with the soil we use and any high, higher-end you know, potting soil that has a wetting agent in it, there is a sweet spot of not letting it, if you let it dry out too far, it will be extremely difficult to re, to get it to reabsorb and re go back to 100%, you know, of what it was capable of holding. And at the same time, if you keep it overly wet, it the, the, <laughs> the wetting agent almost works too well <laughs> and it cannot dry right. out as well. So, you're watering both in the timing, the frequency of when you're watering, and also the amount of water. You can, the, those soils can take a little bit of work to get used to kind of watering, but it is possible to take some of the soil we have and dry it out. And if, you know, kind of just to put a ballpark there, if you're saying that soil has a zero to 100% moisture level, if you know that that plant's gonna need around 40, mm -hmm. If you go about two weeks of very intentionally keeping that soil at about 40 and never letting it get too much or, t you know what I mean? Like always just stopping back at that 40, it does kind of, I don't want to say it learns, it's not <laughs> a living object, but it does kind of learn what the achievable moisture level is and will make that the easiest thing to come back to. When you rewater it, it will kind of get to the 40% again and then leach out the rest of it unless you continue to give it water. And the way that that primarily works is the length of time water is running over the pot. So if it's completely dry and you put it in your sink and you just give it, uh, you know, faucet on two seconds, faucet off, even though you watered hundred percent of that plant, it's not going to have regained its moisture level to a hundred percent. It may in that, 
you know, two seconds of time only been able to get to 10% moisture. Water retention is actually, it's funny you bring this up because I'm sitting here with my soil science textbook in my Oh yeah, lab. Brett came in prepared. I was like, <laughs> what, what is that binder? And he's like, my soil textbook. And my exact answer before Zach walked in was, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's actually a scientific formula that uses the Greek symbol psi um, that you can use to calculate water retention. Um, and so I'm not going to go into that, but yes, it, it is very much a way that you can quote unquote calculate it by the amount of time that the water is going through the soil crossed with how dry the soil already is crossed with the pressure of the water. And then also if there are any things extra in the soil, like a wetting agent that will allow for the water retention to grab onto the soil particles faster than others. Yeah. So the the cool thing to kind of know about the main soil we use in it, you know, it kind of makes its way into every mix we use, mm. even if it's a, a much smaller fraction, is yeah, the amount of time that you're, you know, watering, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, matters greatly to how much that soil is going to hold. Um, and uh, for the customers, um, there are types of wetting agents out there that you can find online that you can buy by the gallon that you could mix up and then essentially drench your plants um, with that wetting agent that will then inoculate the soil with that. So if you know if you are someone who is prone to letting your soil dry out a little bit too hard and then you're worried <laughs> Zach just raised his hand and then you're worried about that you're worried I'm about listening. that pot having to get you know, um, wet again and you're watering it three, four or five times and it's still cracked around the edges, you can get wetting agents out there. It's not something that just the industry uses. If you are looking for, you know, wetting agents, I suggest you um, search the web, but they are out there. And one uh, last little tiny, tiny little tip that I think I made in like an Instagram comment or something a couple weeks ago. But um, if you do happen to get a plant, um, that you believe is not drying out quite as quickly. The other thing to keep in mind is that the um, specifically when we're shipping plants, right? Um, those little micro vibrations that happen that entire every pothole that's on your street and every street in between you and the the post office, you know, the the plant is going to feel that too. We do a great job to make sure they're, you know, not going to take on leaf damage or anything. But those subtle vibrations do slowly compact soil just like if you took a tray with some dirt in it and shook it back and forth eventually you will compact that down over time um so that is a factor at play sometimes where it may not have been that um condensed or that tight of a soil mix when it left our greenhouses Absolutely. but was a result of shipping one of the best things you can do to help that without taking your plant out of the pot and fully repotting it is simply just squeezing on the edges of the pot to help open up some of the airflow along the sides of the pot and help mm. drain out that mix. Sometimes it can just be from that compression, which again was a problem we had a lot more of before this year. But with these newer, um, you know, soil mm. mixes and things, and for the, pretty much across the board, we use more perlite and a right. better better draining mix than we did in the past two years. So just something to keep in mind that um, it doesn't, there are little things like squeezing the pot to create some more airflow or even really just, it breaks up that soil too. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Or even just uh, uh, like you said, kind of flipping the plant over to look at the bottom. You can also kind of pull the plant out loosely like that and add some rocks or some larger perlite to the bottom of the pot that will also help. 
um, make sure that there's airflow coming into the bottom of that and helping to, to, to dry out that soil. But those are just some small little things you can do to, to get a little bit better airflow, even in our kind of more my, thick mixes. I'd say my one tidbit would be, and I use them at home, um, most places, either online or either, even Lowe's or Home Depot, you can get a heating mat like for, grow, for plant growing, not like for your legs if your muscles are sore. Mm -hmm. um, but they're heated mats that you can put the pot on and then not only will the heat obviously dry out the pot quicker, but also the the warmth will stimulate root production. Mm. Um, so your plants will root in quicker and you will see that the growth will increase as well as you just have to make sure to keep it watered now because it's going to dry out quicker. That's <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Well, um, hopefully you guys have enjoyed this kind of talk about soils. Um, I know this podcast is a little bit longer than we have in the past, but that's awesome. Um, but thank you guys for listening. Brett, we hope to have you back sometime soon. Uh, if you have any more questions, listeners, about anything soil-related, maybe we can throw that in uh, the end of the next podcast or something. If there's a follow-up question, you can throw it um, to us via email at feedback at everyplantstory.com or shoot us a DM on Instagram at every plant story. Brett, thank you so much for being here thank and for you. going over all of your textbook. Again, Zach, I mean, <laughs> yeah, legit prepared. Like, yeah, science binder. Seriously prepared. I love it. I love when, it. when do we get him the Gabriel like lab coat? I was like, going to say, like you need to be like yes. 1 a.m. white lab coat with the flashlight <laughs> running so around hot in the greenhouse, but like, yeah. yeah. It can't be just winter the lab time. coat, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's probably, probably against stress. Yeah, we have, yeah, maybe in the winter time when we can. Uh, although his uh, the the personal protective gear you wear when when applying pesticides can kind of. I mean, it's it, not that, that far away. Yeah, that definitely. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, uh, thanks so much for being here, Brett, and we hope to have you back. Uh, Zach, anything else in the in the media world? No. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, that's awesome, and definitely, uh, we'll, Zach, we'll get that uh, that clip of the. The time lapse. Yeah, up oh, on yeah, the yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. The time lapse. Yeah, well, I'm gonna get a little bit more info from Brett, and uh, that's a really just. I mean, I learned a lot from that too, and it is the most just alien looking, but beautiful at the same time plant. So yeah, we'll uh, keep an eye out for that. That's awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Every Plant Story podcast. Rate and review us on your favorite podcast app, and we will see you guys next week. See you. Bye. Thank you.